Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Welcome back. The dispute between Sancho and Don Quixote that begins chapter 30 requires us to reflect on the ethical and moral problems of Princess Micomicona's narrative. Sancho accuses his master of the sin of giving freedom to the galley slaves. Look who's talking. Don Quixote responds that knights errant are in no way obliged or concerned to discover whether the afflicted, enchained, and oppressed whom they find along the roads travel in that condition or suffer that anguish because of their misdeeds or their good deeds. If we accept Don Quixote's view, we undercut Sancho's plan to enslave the citizens of Micomicon, right? And when Don Quixote compares the galley slaves to a rosary, a string of disheartened and unfortunate people, the moral question strikes even closer to home. In any case, Don Quixote is enraged. In fact, he feels righteous anger, and Dorotea must intervene so that the knight does not attack his squire. Maintaining narrative tension, Princess Micomicona now tells of her kingdom and how she came to Spain in search of Don Quixote. If we attend to its details, her story is a sublimated version of her experience with Fernando, although it refers to other characters too. I don't think this requires Freudian theory, but again, we see many parallels. Echoing Sancho's fantasy, the huge giant and lord of a great island off the coast of Micomicon is named Panda Filando of the Gloomy Glance. Motivated by his desire to marry the princess, the giant attacks her kingdom. As prophesied by her father, Tinacrio the Wise, a knight-errant named Don Azote, or Don Higote, who has a certain mole below his left shoulder, will remedy the ills of her kingdom. Hilariously, Don Quixote wants Sancho to help him undress to verify the prophecy. More pragmatic, the princess says that it's not necessary to look into such trifles and that as long as Don Quixote has any mole anywhere, it is all of the same flesh. She ends her story with another geographical slip, saying that she traveled to Spain and disembarked at Osuna, which is about 100 kilometers from the sea. Is this lapse just a way of mocking Don Quixote? Is it psychosexual? Or is it symbolic of some greater moral and geographical problem? You decide. When Don Quixote expresses his satisfaction to Sancho, did I not tell you? The squire responds with two heel kicks in the air, followed by some very vulgar language. For the fucker who doesn't marry after slitting the throat of Sir Panda Hilado, and damn if the queen's not a bad snag, may all the fleas in my bed be so sweet. 
The image of the sword at the throat of the giant and Sancho's hint at having the princess in his own bed are striking. Moreover, the transformation of panda filando into panda hilado suggests the verb hilar or to spin, which at that time also meant to fornicate. Sancho's phrases, in conjunction with multiple allusions to Don Quixote's nudity and the erotic content of Cardenio's and Dorotea's respective stories, force us to think about the sexual significance of the Sierra Morena in Cervantes' novel. Now we confront yet another lapse when Don Quixote declares himself ready to serve Princess Micomicona until I find myself facing your fierce enemy whose arrogant head I intend with the help of God and my arm to decapitate with the sharp edges of, I cannot say good sword, thanks to Ginés de Pasamonte, who stole mine. There has been no mention in any previous episode of any of Don Quixote's swords. Next, when Don Quixote says he cannot be married to anyone, not even if it were the phoenix, Sancho becomes frustrated and insults Dulcinea, saying she is no way near as beautiful as Micomicona. She doesn't even compare to her shoe, and insisting that his master marry the princess so that upon becoming king, he can make his squire a marquis or a governor. For the second time in only a few pages, Don Quixote is infuriated by his squire's blasphemies, and this time he gives him two blows. Once again, Dorotea has to intervene to save Sancho's life. For his part, the squire hides behind the princess's palfrey and lets it slip that he hasn't even seen Dulcinea. When Don Quixote gets even angrier, Sancho has to clarify that he didn't see her up close. In the end, Dorotea makes Sancho kiss his master's hand, adding again that you must not be denied a state where you will live like a prince. Don Quixote forgives his squire. Then the two men move aside to discuss the details of Sancho's embassy to El Toboso. The mad knight expects good news, but Sancho complains of his beating, stating that it was worse than that of the fulling mills episode. Don Quixote's response is enigmatic. For a new sin, a new penance. What sin? To make matters worse, inserted at this point in the second edition of the novel is the explanation of Sancho's missing gray. A gypsy comes down the road riding a donkey and Sancho recognizes it. Sancho Panza, whose eyes and soul went after every ass he saw, had scarcely glanced at the man when he knew it was Ginés de Pasamonte, and by the thread of the gypsy, he found the coil of his ass, and such was the truth. Sancho yells, Oh, thief, Ginesillo, and the galley slave runs away. So the squire recovers his precious ass, and with that he kissed and caressed it as if it were a person. The ass was silent and let himself be kissed and caressed by Sancho without answering a single word. Everyone offers Sancho congratulations for finding the gray, especially Don Quixote, who told him he would not thereby annul the promissory note of the three donkeys. 
After the priest and Cardenio comment on the simplicity of Don Quixote and Sancho, the chapter ends with the continuation of the dialogue between knight and squire. Sancho admits that he did not take the letter to Dulcinea, and for his part, Don Quixote admits that he already knew as much, because two days after your departure, I found in my power the memory book where I wrote it. Sancho tells his master that he had memorized the letter and that he had found a certain sacristan who then transferred it back to paper. An hilariously satirical detail here is that, according to Sancho, even though the man had read many letters of excommunication, he had neither seen nor read so beautiful a letter as that one. When Don Quixote asks if he still remembers the letter, Sancho says only the part about the sovereign lady and that last bit, yours till death, the night of the sorrow face. Let's summarize. Here, the novel is characterized by a comedic and ridiculous tone, referring repeatedly to fantastical events, places, and characters. Moreover, we're almost overwhelmed by the number of characters, by the multiple narrative threads, by all the stories being told by so many of these same characters. And everything seems so chaotic, impossible to tie together. But be careful. We must read this narrative entropy as a series of red herrings. For example, if we contemplate the details of Princess Mikomikona's tale, we find connections with Dorotea's. Another example, Cervantes is clearly articulating some sort of evaluation of, perhaps even an indictment against, Spanish expansionism. It's as if Habsburg imperialism were little more than another chivalric fantasy, or worse, It's as if Spaniards themselves were the real monsters of these fantasies. In other words, if by the strength of his arm, Don Quixote is supposed to free the citizens of Micomicon, only to then have Sancho sell them all into slavery in order to become filthy rich, well, how horrible is that?